Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing the Middle Way, Walking the Middle Way. In learning about the Middle Way, you will often hear people say, walk the Middle Way, or bring the mind to the middle, or things of this nature. And essentially what people are describing here is how the mind tends to live on one side or the other. It tends to reside or dwell or crave one side or the other. Our mind can oftentimes dwell in sadness. It can reside there and dwell in sadness and then it craves happiness. And the more that it craves this happiness, the more that it becomes sad. Or the mind can live in happiness and it can just be happy and happy and happy and happy. Or it can be lonely and bored and shy and displeased. This is a discontent mind. The mind resides in all of these different feelings where the mind's discontent. Either sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fears. It can be happy. It can be excited. It can be elated. It can be lonely or bored or shy. There's all these different feelings that the mind experiences and it kind of moves around all these different feelings and it's discontent. And there may be periods of time in there where you're fairly calm or fairly peaceful or fairly content, but by and large, the unenlightened mind is gonna move around to these various discontent feelings. And what the teaching about the middle way teaches us is how to bring the mind to the middle because it's only in the middle that the mind can be peaceful, calm, content with joy. Or another way that I usually say it is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Because where this teaching comes from is it's said during the lifetime of Gautama Buddha, that he observed someone playing a sitar. A sitar is an instrument from that region of the world, a very ancient instrument that is essentially a stringed instrument, kind of similar to what like a guitar is today, then it was a sitar. And what he noticed is that when the string was very loose, or even just a little bit loose, and somebody plucked the string, the, the music didn't sound good. The instrument kind of, right, you kind of, probably experienced that or seen that before. Or if the string was too tight and somebody plucked the string, even just slightly too tight, and someone plucked the string, the instrument didn't play beautiful music. 
It was only when the string was tuned perfectly in the middle that when the string is plucked, that it plays beautiful music and it plays as the instrument was intended to play. Well, bringing that analogy to the mind is that when the mind is sad or angry or frustrated or irritated or feeling guilt or shame or fear, the mind isn't functioning in an optimal way. It's not playing beautiful music. And conversely, when the mind is happy or excited or elated, the mind is not playing beautiful music. And this is a time where unfortunate things can happen. We can say things when we're too gleeful and too happy that maybe kind of slipped out of the mouth and we shouldn't have said, or maybe we're unaware of the mind because we're so excited and so happy and jumping off the wall. We maybe like fall down and hurt ourselves, or twist our ankle walking off the curb. Or if our mind is shy or lonely or bored, the mind isn't optimally in the middle. So the teaching here, it's a real generalized teaching that is basically saying bring the mind to the middle or walk the middle way. And what basically is being shared here is that all of these feelings that we're having on the edges and around are all discontentness. And in order to attain this mental state of enlightenment or Nibbana, we need to bring the mind to the middle. And of course, we do that through multiple practices like meditation and so forth. The Eightfold Path is the path to enlightenment or the path to Nibbana. And we shared that last week. And that's why here in the book, we go from chapter five, which is the Eightfold Path, to chapter six, which is the middle way or walking the middle way. Because what you need to do in order to attain this mental state of enlightenment is yes, you need to learn all the teachings that I've been sharing so far and ones that we'll be sharing in the future, particularly practicing the Eightfold Path. But a more generalized way of kind of carrying the Buddhist teachings with you on a daily basis is always to remember to walk the middle way. This is a very generalized, very brief teaching that can really help guide your decisions on a daily basis or even an hourly or moment by moment basis. Because everything you do in life, you need to bring the mind to the middle. So for example, let's just take something like work, okay? Everybody pretty much needs to work and do something to sustain their life. Nobody can just sit on a couch and watch TV all day long and that's all they do their entire life. They need to do other things. They need to need to work essentially. We need to do something to sustain our life. So what the teaching of the middle way can guide you on is, well, how much work do I really need to do? And some people might work and work and work and work and work, you know, 14, 16, 18 hours a day. And that may be uncomfortable and it may be leading to problems in their life where they don't have time to relax. They don't have time to take care of their other needs. They maybe don't have time to spend with their family. And that's difficult for them and makes it challenging. 
And what they should work to do is bring that more to the middle. But then conversely, if you have somebody that is sitting on the couch eating food all day long, and that's pretty much predominantly all they do, that's not in the middle either. And that person is probably going to have a certain amount of sadness and maybe be overweight or obese for lack of activity. That's not in the middle either. They need to bring that to the middle. And that middle and where that middle is, is different for every person. Every person and and in every moment is different. There may be periods of your life where you do need to work 14, 15, 16, 18 hours a day. And that's just what you need to be doing during that time. I think about like my mom when she was a single mom and she had two kids. She had to work a whole, whole lot. And I spent a lot of time with my grandparents so that she could actually work because that's what was needed to sustain the family. But over her life, she slowly brought that back to the middle where she spent less and less time at work as she aged. And then I think about my stepfather who he tended to not have very many jobs and he tended to always kind of get fired or laid off or quit his jobs. And he tended to spend a lot of time at home. And that once again made my mom need to work more and more and more and more. So in order to bring this household to the middle, different people were doing different things. But what we need to do is we need to find the middle for ourselves on all different aspects of our life, not just with jobs and income, but with other things as well, whether it's spending time with friends or spending time with family, whether it's our sexual activity, you know, if we're craving sexual activity and we want to have three or four or five partners and having sex so much, that's not in the middle. But perhaps for you, having no sex may not be something that feels comfortable for you at this time in your life. So you need to find where is that middle. There's many different topics. You know, if we want to even talk about like my son, like spending time with my son, if I spend a whole lot of time with him, he could potentially get attached and only have experiences with spending time with his dad, not spending time with friends or his mom or other people in the world. He only gets kind of attached to dad and and learning from dad and he doesn't spend time with other people. That's not in the middle. But also if he is spending all of his time with other friends and no time with his parents, that's not in the middle too. So for me, I can't spend all my time, you know, with him whenever he's here with me and his mom. But I also can't spend no time with him either because then he doesn't get the insight and parental guidance that he needs from his dad. So I need to find that middle. And oftentimes that middle is shifting because it's impermanent, right? There are certain times where I might go a week or two where I don't spend much time with my son because I'm really busy with work. But then there's times where I'm not as busy and I can spend more time with him. So it's about finding where that middle is and then recognizing that it's impermanent and it's shifting and it's always changing. It's not going to be set in stone, but we have to be able to find that middle, which is going to be a peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. 
in any of these situations, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's spending time with friends or family, whatever it is, you know, even something as simple as like washing a car, right? If I spend every week, two or three times a week washing my car, that's going to take a lot of time and effort that's going to take me away from other things. But if I spend no time washing the car at any point in time or getting it washed and serviced by somebody else, the car's going to break down and the paint's going to fade and it's not going to be in good shape for me to use it for daily life. So every single aspect of your life, you need to find the middle. And when you find that middle, know that it's going to always be shifting and changing. But that middle is where the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's only bringing the mind to the middle that the mind can perform optimally with concentration, with focus, with memory, with being able to stay in the present moment and not allow the mind to dwell in the past or in the future. So out of all the Buddhist teachings, this concept of walking the middle way or bringing the mind to the middle is one that I never really see in his actual teachings of the Dhamma, but I hear about this a lot and it has helped me in a very generalized way, in a very simple way, in order to always be aware of where the middle is and make sure I find it and make sure I stay there. And then I realize that the middle is always shifting. So with right mindfulness or awareness of mind, you can discover where is that middle on all these various topics. And then once you find it and just kind of like ebb and flow with that middle, then you know, okay, this is the middle and you can maintain that middle even through the ebbing and the flowing. You can maintain that middle and maintain the peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. So let me open this up to questions. As I mentioned, this particular chapter doesn't have as much meat in it as some of the previous chapters. And it was inserted into the book at this particular stage because there's a lot of meat as we go through the Buddhist teachings. We go from chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, which are some pretty heavy chapters, especially what is enlightenment, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. So here with chapter 6, I'm kind of giving the mind a little bit of a break and kind of giving you a little bit of a generalized teaching. And then next week, chapter 7 and chapter 8, and then we go into chapter 9, which is Gamma, and chapter 10, which is Merit. These next, you know, three, four, five chapters get really deep into the teachings again. So this is a good point that we can talk about the middle way and walking the middle way. And we can also talk about other questions that you might have from the previous weeks of teaching or even things from your meditation practice, anything that you've been doing and experiencing in meditation. So any questions that you guys have, everything is fair game. So I see Bill's raised his hand. So go ahead, Bill. What's your question? Uh, hi. Yeah, thanks, David. Can you hear me okay? I can. Okay. Uh, so, and, and I really, I really like that, that part about the, myth, the middle way. Maybe that's because I'm a Libra. <laughs> but, uh, 
you know, the whole finding the balance, right? Yes, essentially, Um, that's the modern words that we say, right? We say, lead a balanced lifestyle. Essentially, what we're saying is what the Buddha said was walk the middle way. So we have modern language that even says exactly the same thing that the Buddha was saying. We just use different language. So, um, so in terms of, of that balance uh, and that middle way, um, I, I'm, I'm finding that I'm making progress in terms of some of the issues. Let me get rid of this. Um, um, I'm, I'm finding that, like, so I, I have an issue with my laptop, and um, and I and I know that, you know, not not too recently, I would have really gotten very worked up about it. I would have been extremely frustrated, and I, I my immediate thought was, oh, my computer is impermanent. Good. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it, it's a problem, you know, and, and I'm going to have to troubleshoot. And, you know, so staying calm in, in that in that situation helped. I was able to, to figure out how to get the problem resolved uh, within a matter of a few hours. And um, so that was just one situation where I noticed that I've, I've made some growth and, and Excellent, other little Bill. situations. Excellent, Bill. Can you hear me? Yeah, that's excellent. It's good that you're seeing the growth because that's good encouragement to show you that the teachings are working and you're progressing. Um, and then little things that typically annoy me, I, I, I catch myself immediately thinking, ah, opportunity to practice. Good. And, uh, drop good. it. Uh, don't let it bother you. Just go on. Go on with, with whatever it is that you're doing. Excellent. Um, Excellent. But, so on the flip side, so the last few days, um, the coronavirus situation has um, got me walking around with with this knot in my stomach, and um, just seeing the the changes in in the area because of it. Um, talking with friends who are very worried about their livelihood. Um, seeing their hours cut down. Um, today I had a conversation with my youngest brother. Uh, he and his wife uh, live in Seattle, which is a hot spot of yes. the virus. Yeah. Um, so now I'm, you know, worried about that. Um, my best friend here in Chiang Mai, um, their hotel's going to have to shut down for a while, so he's really... So, I'm wanting to know what what you recommend uh, for that anxiety and the fear. Um, what are your recommendations? Sure. So, let's talk a little bit about what you're describing, and then, so we'll talk about the problem and then let's talk about the solution, okay? And some of this stuff you've heard before, but I'm just going to repeat it because we got a lot of different people that have joined us today. So what you're describing, Bill, is what the Buddha taught in the Four Noble Truths. Remember, all unenlightened beings are going to experience discontentness of mind, which is the sadness, the anger, the frustration, the guilt, shame, so forth and so on, the happiness, excitement, elation, 
boredom, loneliness, shyness, all these things. This is a discontent mind. That's the first noble truth. All unenlightened beings will experience discontentness of mind. The second noble truth, we cause our own discontentness because we have this craving or desire, these attachments, this longing, this mental longing and with a strong eagerness for things to be permanent when everything is impermanent. Okay, so let's just stop right there because this is the origin of the problem and the cause of the problem. So essentially what the Buddha discovered is the mind has this craving, this desire, this attachment, this mental longing, this strong eagerness for things to be permanent when everything's impermanent. So he discovered that the mind is constantly longing for satisfaction and that it's uncomfortable with impermanence. Because one of the ways to say that we cause our own discontentness because the mind craves permanence is basically the, another way to say that is the mind doesn't like impermanence. So what we're experiencing right now with the coronavirus is the entire world was going about its, its daily life and we were experiencing kind of mild impermanence here and there and people had a little bit of frustration and anger and there was various people all throughout the world that have discontentness but it was kind of isolated and smaller things here and there unless you're dealing with maybe like a death in the family or something like this they're kind of like incidental things like what you were talking about bill when your computer wasn't working in the past you would get annoyed or irritated or frustrated but now you've trained your mind because that's a real simple one you've trained your mind ah no big deal but now what we're experiencing is we're experiencing this massive impermanence this massive change to our society, this massive change to humanity, all of a sudden, people who had certain lives where they would go out to work, they would go see friends, they would go to restaurants, they had certain activities that they did on a daily basis. Now, a lot of people are secluded in their home and there's been this massive change. The mind doesn't like change. The mind doesn't like this impermanence and therefore the mind becomes discontent. This is why if somebody needs to stay in their house for three, four, five, six hours, maybe they're okay with that. But when you go to multiple days where their mind is attached to certain activities, certain relationships, certain things that they were doing on a daily basis, the mind holds on to that. And now that there's been this kind of immediate and drastic change, a lot of people's minds are discontent, not just because they're staying inside. That's one, you know, they're lacking their conversations with their coworkers. They're lacking their job. They're lacking that commute. They go to work every day. They're lacking to see that those friends at the restaurant that they wave hi to all the time. But what they're also experiencing is the fear of potential death. The mind is holding on and latching on and craving permanence, thinking that somehow this body is permanent and somehow in the human condition, we should never get sick. But what a more awakened mind is going to do is it's going to recognize that this quarantine is impermanent. 
it's impermanent. Even if it's four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, it's still impermanent. What an enlightened mind is going to do is recognize as a human being in this human condition, we are going to get sick. It's part of life. It's part of being in the human condition. But that sickness is impermanent as well. And what a more enlightened mind is going to understand is, yes, I am going to die at some point. This body is going to die. And the people around me are going to die. So what you're experiencing specifically, Bill, is you're experiencing the discontentness associated with the various attachments that you have. So during this time, it's a good opportunity for you, if there is any doubt about the Buddhist teachings, is erode some of the doubt or all of the doubt that somehow the Four Noble Truths aren't correct. Because what the Second Noble Truth is explaining to you is you are causing your own discontent mind because of the craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing with a strong eagerness for things to be permanent when things are impermanent. So knowing that your brother is in a hot zone for the coronavirus is causing you discontentness because even though you recognize he's human and even though you know that at some point either him or you have to die, the mind is still trying to hold on. It still wants to hold on. And when you see your friend having to close their hotel and you know that that's going to impact their life. The mind is wanting to hold on and it's wanting to see this permanent goodness for your friend and seeing your friend go through this problematic time with their business is causing discontentness to the mind. So one thing is it's a great opportunity in all of the problems that we're facing in the world right now to see that our attachments to this world are going to cause the discontent mind. It's also a great time on a side note to see that the Buddhist teachings around killing living beings. And he talked about not having business in living beings and not having business in meat because this would cause problems in the world, essentially unwholesome gamma. It's a great time to see that teaching too, because this coronavirus originated in China and with the market of killing animals and selling meat, which are parts of his teachings that he said this is going to cause problems. So that's kind of a side note. So helping to erode any doubts that you might have about the teachings that they can lead you to enlightenment is a really good thing for you. But the third noble truth, to eliminate this discontent mind, you know that you need to eliminate the attachments. You know that now. You've studied with me enough. You've read the book enough. You've heard these talks enough. Even though you've heard these talks and even though you know that that is the way to eliminate the discontent mind and even though you're learning this Eightfold Path really, really well, learning it intellectually and soaking it into the mind to realize the teachings and train the mind to practice that every moment are two completely different things. So understanding, yes, I know I'm causing my own attack. You said this before class started. I know I'm causing my own discontentness. I know it's from attachment. I know that's what it is, but what can I do? And what you can do to eliminate this craving is breathing mindfulness meditation, 
repeatedly, 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 multiple sessions and practicing generosity. Those are the antidotes or the solutions to this mind that wants to hold on and that has this craving. There's no quick fixes. But the good thing is, is that you are seeing the benefits of having done this work and learning this and that you see with your computer, you weren't annoyed or irritated or maybe you were less annoyed or less irritated. So those things, when you're stripping back the onion, right? We talk about enlightenment is stripping back the onion, stripping back the layers. That, that layer about attached to the computer, that was easy for you to kind of fluff off and let that go. But the brother that may get the coronavirus in the hotbed of coronavirus in America, that's an attachment that's going to be much more challenging for you to pull back. And that's why you're experiencing the discontentness. A close friend who owns a hotel that you've been friendly with for a long period of time, that's a harder one to pull back. So even though you know that it's your attachments that's leading to it, to really eliminate that attachment in the mind is going to take more work. So continue to do your breathing mindfulness meditation every day. And if you can get two or three times a day, that's great. Even if it's just 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, the more you accumulate that meditation through multiple sessions, the attachment and the craving of the mind is going to get less and less and practice generosity with your time, with your effort, with your resources. You know, I don't think you're probably hoarding supplies. It doesn't seem like that's happening here in Thailand, but all that hoarding of supplies that we see in some places in the world with toilet paper and hand sanitizer, that's all craving. And the mind thinks if I, if I just accumulate 18,000 rolls of toilet paper, I will be okay. Or if I just have 500 bottles of hand sanitizer, I will be okay. My mind will be content. My mind will be peaceful. No, it's not. That's all craving. That's all desire. That's all attachment. So you're headed in the right direction, Bill, because you're seeing progress, but you just haven't been doing it long enough that these deeper held attachments with your brother and this friend that owns a hotel, it's still causing the mind to be discontent. And the best thing you can do at this time is to continue to do breathing mindfulness meditation, continue to practice generosity, and while you're at it, work on that fetter of doubt about the teachings. If you have any doubt about the Buddhist teachings, confirm for your mind, wow, look at my mind and look, the Buddha actually 100% is explaining why my mind's discontent. Yes, I see that this coronavirus originated in this market selling meat, selling animals, selling living beings, killing. That's exactly what the Buddha taught us not to do. And he said, if we do that, it's going to create unwholesome karma or we're going to have unwholesome results as part of those unwholesome decisions. And you can see that so you can use situations like this to really start to erode any doubt that you have about the teachings, which is going to help you get to that first stage of enlightenment, which is one of the fetters. Yes, you. you're welcome. So there is no quick fixes, but you're on the right path. You understand it intellectually of why this is happening, but you just haven't trained the mind enough. So there's still going to be discontentness, still going to be annoying, still going to be frustration, irritation, sadness, fears, 
you're still going to be experiencing all that, even though now the mind is starting to understand why all that's happening and what it's coming from. You just haven't gotten the training enough. So here's this mind kind of moving forward. And it's even though you've conceptualized and understand what the problem is, you haven't gotten enough meditation and enough generosity to cut it off and protect the mind and make it unshakable. You haven't reached enlightenment yet. That's why you're still experiencing fear, you know, sadness, frustration, irritation, because you're not enlightened yet. And that's okay because you're on the path. And one of the things, the other thing that these kind of situations can do is they can point out to you, where are your attachments? So, you know, you're attached to your brother. You know, you're attached to this friend that has the hotel. You're, you may have your own fear of death. That, that you don't want to go outside the house because you're afraid of potential death. So you know that's, a, that's something that you need to eliminate is this fear of death. So as your mind has this discontentness, you can look at it and say, well, what are the attachments that are causing this? This is chapter 12 in the book. We're going to talk about identifying your attachments because the Four Noble Truths, all enlightened beings experience discontentness we cause our discontentness through craving, desire, attachments for permanence when everything's impermanent. The third noble truth is we eliminate our discontent mind by eliminating our attachments. But how could you ever eliminate them if you can't identify them? So the primary goal in this practice is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Yes, meditation and generosity is going to help you kind of generally work in that direction. But if you want to know specifically what are your attachments, these are opportunities when you can identify that. And being able to identify them will allow you to eliminate them. So you know I'm attached to my brother, I'm attached to my friend, I'm attached to my own life. I don't want to die, right? These kind of problematic situations where the mind's discontent, don't feel sad that your mind's discontent, don't feel guilty. Don't feel shameful that you've done anything wrong. Use it as a learning opportunity and say, ah, what are, what's in there that's, that's causing this discontent mind? There's attachments in there. And when you start identifying them, now you can work to eliminate them. And that's the beauty is that every time your mind's discontent, it's showing you exactly what your attachments are. And if you need help to identify them, let me know. So with what you've said so far, I just kind of picked out, you know, three attachments that you're having, but there's more in there. There's more, you know, once you, and once you eliminate these, there's going to be more in there. So yeah. that's where having a relationship with a teacher can be really helpful that I can help you identify these. And once you start identifying them on your own and you do this two, three, four times, or I'm sorry, once you start identifying them with a teacher three, four, five times, then you'll be able to identify them on your own and you'll be better at it because you can't always rely on your teacher to identify your attachments. So in addition to meditation, the second best skill that you can have is to be able to identify your attachments. Because if the whole goal is to eliminate attachments, how could you eliminate them if you can't even identify them? And for some people, they don't even have a definition of what an attachment is. They think just having a phone is attachment or just having a son is an attachment or just having a life partner is an attachment. 
just having these possessions aren't attachments. Those are possessions. So you actually know what an attachment is. You know it's causing your mind to be discontent. So you've gotten through that level of wisdom. Now you just need to identify what these attachments are so you can work to eliminate them. Just, just keep working at it every single day. You're on the right path, Bill, or you wouldn't be seeing that progress that you saw with the, the laptop. So good. Max, do we have any other questions coming in? Yeah, Amina has asked a excellent question. Amina asks, what is a child-friendly way to explain letting go of attachments? Our young daughter is becoming upset at times because she can't play outside. And uh, that's because Amina and her family have been inside for three weeks in Italy. I mean, it says, my husband and I have taught her that the only constant in life is change and she understands that concept. But her desire to be outside is strong and wondering what in the teachings could be helpful to explain to her at this time of quarantine with the coronavirus. Okay, good question, Amina. So... Yes, my first advice was going to be make sure you start with your daughter explaining impermanence. And it sounds like you've done that. So that's perfect. Making sure that she understands impermanence because we need to start with children the same place that we need to start with ourselves, which is the three universal truths. And usually that teaching on non-self, I kind of reserve and teach to children later. And I even teach to adults later, but I usually introduce it up front. But that first universal truth of impermanence sounds like your daughter is understanding. Make sure that she understands discontentness. Make sure she understands the discontent mind and that she's causing it. Okay. And make sure she observes that the reason why her mind is discontent is because she wants to go outside so bad. And wanting is an attachment. That's that strong eagerness that longing, that mental longing. Make sure that she realizes that she's causing that herself because she wants it so badly and that she can't always go outside because going outside is impermanent. Okay, that's the first two things. The third thing that you need to do is help your daughter by redirecting her craving towards something else. Not try to create craving in another direction, but move her mind for her because I know your daughter and I've met her. She's too young at this point to internalize and intellectualize this and apply it and practice on her own hundred percent. You see even us, I mean, Bill's 58 years old and even, you know, as much as he's been learning with me, he's still challenged with this too. So your daughter at her age, she's not going to be able to eliminate this attachment on her own. So this is where we practice in a community of people, in a sangha, a community that's helping each other. So where you see people having attachments, you can skillfully help them move towards non-attachment. So when you see your daughter and you know that she understands impermanence, you know that she understands her mind is discontent, and you know that she understands she's causing it, because her mind is craving permanence to go outside when everything is impermanent, now skillfully move her mind towards something else. What you need to do is once she understands all these things, call her into another activity. Take her into your home, maybe play a card game with her, 
introduce her to some new activity, sit down with her and paint with her, maybe watch a little TV, maybe sing a song with her, maybe do some dancing and have fun and laugh and joke. And then do that for a period of time, maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes, get her involved in something and then slowly move yourself away that she's now doing this activity of painting on her own. Maybe you helped her move in that direction by saying, oh, well, we can go outside another time, Malia. Why don't we go ahead and paint now? This is a great time to paint. Go get your paints. Mommy will paint with you. And if she's like, no, I don't want to paint. Say, okay, well, what would you like to do? Here's some options if you can't think of any. You can name off some options. Why don't we sing a song? Why don't we listen to music? Why don't we dance? What are some ideas you have that we can actually do? And then when she comes up with an idea and she says, I would like to do this. And then you say, okay, great, let's do that. And then you help her five, 10, 15 minutes. You kind of get involved with that. And then just slowly ease yourself out of the situation to the point where she's now doing that on her own. And now her mind has moved in that direction. Now, let's say an hour, two hours, three hours later, she starts craving to go outside again. Then you remind her, you say, ah, look, your mind was content with painting. And now that you're done painting, your mind is starting to crave or desire or be attached to go outside again. This is why your mind is discontent. So. Malia, you have an option. You can continue to crave going outside and your mind's going to be discontent or you can find something else and now your mind can be content. Just like we painted earlier, if you're done painting, let's come up with another idea of something you can do. Are you interested in reading a book? Are you interested in playing hopscotch in the house with mommy? What is it that you would like to do that we can do here? So now, even though she's three hours down the road, for that three hours, she stopped craving going outside. So for that three hours, her mind was content. And you can show her that. And now when her mind becomes discontent again, because she's starting to crave going outside, show her that. And then help her see by moving her mind in the other direction, she can attain peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind. Essentially, Amina, what you're doing is you're helping your daughter develop right mindfulness so that she can see her mind is discontent. So you're helping her very skillfully see right mindfulness, awareness of mind, see that she's discontent, and then help her apply right effort to help her move the mind in a direction of peacefulness, calmness, contentness, and with joy. So because a child isn't going to be able to internalize all this and apply all of it, you have to be the one, if you choose, to show loving kindness and compassion with your daughter through your own practice to help her develop this awareness of mind, which is right mindfulness, and help her develop right effort where she's now applying effort to eliminate that craving, eliminate that attachment, because that's the only thing that's going to solve the problem. She can sit there and look out the window and crave and you, you can tell her that's attachment, that's attachment, that's attachment. You can tell her that all day long, but she's going to keep craving it. So you have to help her 
apply right effort. And that's how you're going to help her move her mind in the direction of peacefulness, calmness, serenity, contentness with joy. And the more and more that you do that, she will learn how to do that on her own. So then each time she comes to you, because she's not going to be able to internalize this and implement it for every situation right away. Right now, she's craving going outside, so she's going to be discontent. In the future, she's going to have other cravings, which is going to cause the mind to be discontent. But if you lay the groundwork here where you're teaching her right mindfulness and right effort, then when she comes to you in the future, each time it'll get easier and easier where you can then just remind her, ah, look, your mind is craving cookies. Mommy doesn't have cookies right now, but your mind's discontent because you really want that cookie, don't you? She's like, yeah, yeah, I really do. You say, okay, well, that means you need to move your mind to something else. What about a banana or an apple or a piece of cake? So you're be able to introduce and help her apply right mindfulness and right effort easier if you spend good quality time with her now and teach her this slowly step by step. And it will even help you too, Amina, because explaining these to kids in a very simple way and helping them practice it, it's going to improve your practice. By helping her to practice, it's going to help your practice and seeing these really clearly. Because when you see her move from a discontent mind to a content mind through having right mindfulness and applying right effort, you're going to be like, wow, look how effective these teachings are that I can parent my child through the Eightfold Path and actually help her in an enormous way. And then the more and more you do that, she's going to internalize these teachings and you're going to notice that she will slowly, gradually apply them more and more on her own. And it will help you to share them with her easier and easier for each situation that she encounters. I'd like to follow on from Amina's question and ask what would be some more general advice you'd offer to everyday people as to maybe the things they should try and keep at the top of their mind to help them navigate the situation we all now face and maintain their contentedness of mind. Yeah, what everyone has to understand is that these quarantines, if you're under quarantine, like I know Amina's in Italy, she's under a pretty strict quarantine that's been going on for a pretty long time. In other countries or in other various stages of that, you have to recognize that it's impermanent. You have to recognize that the quarantine's impermanent. Also, recognize that the whole reason why this coronavirus is causing so much discontentness and fear throughout the world is because everybody's mind is craving permanence. We knew about the regular flu virus. We knew about SARS. We knew about Ebola. We knew about, we know about AIDS. We know about cancers. We know about all these things and they happen on a daily basis. And in fact, the yearly influenza virus has had more infections worldwide than the coronavirus by far. The normal influenza virus has caused way more deaths at this point of the year than anything the coronavirus has done. However, because this coronavirus is new, i.e. impermanence, everybody's mind is, whoa, we've got this new virus. Oh my goodness. 
we've got this new virus and everybody's mind is shaken up. And because there's a somewhat higher death rate, whether it's 2% or 4% or whatever it is, that fear of death is kicking in and everybody's craving permanence. They don't want to die. And then because of the quarantines, people are not comfortable because they're staying inside their house. So the symptoms that we're seeing with the hoarding of groceries and supplies and goods, the discontentness, the anger, the frustration at governments and blaming this on China or blaming this on even Donald Trump or blaming this on other politicians. You know, it is what it is. It's a new virus that is shaking everybody's mind up because it's new, because some people are officially quarantined and that's new. A lot of people's minds are shaken up. What people have to recognize is all of this is impermanent. A few weeks from now, a few months from now, people are going to slowly accept that this particular coronavirus is now part of the human condition. And it's something that circulates in the world. And it's going to be here. And it's going to kill people. And it's from our own actions. We have caused this as human beings. As human beings, I'm not thinking China, US, Thailand, you know, New Zealand. I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking human beings as a human race, as a human beings, as humanity. We cause this because we have markets where we're selling living beings, we're selling meat, and we're killing, and we have this close interaction between humans and animals. So this is the result of our decisions. The Buddha told us about this. So this virus is going to be here. It's not going away. We're not going to eradicate it from the world. That's why we get the flu virus every year. Every year the influenza virus comes and every year millions and millions and millions of people are infected and hundreds of thousands of people die from it every single year. If they put up the numbers of the regular influenza infections and deaths next to the coronavirus infections, the regular influenza dwarfs the coronavirus. But the regular influenza virus isn't causing the fear and people's minds aren't discontent about that because it's been around for so long and people's minds have accepted it as permanent. But this coronavirus is new and therefore people haven't accepted it as permanent yet. And even though we're only at about 300,000 infections worldwide, and I think we're at about, I forget, about maybe 20,000 deaths or 30,000 deaths, maybe it's not even that high. The numbers dwarf each other, but because of the newness, that's where everybody's mind is being shaken up. So what you have to remind yourself is that everything is impermanent. The quarantine's impermanent. The sicknesses that we're going to encounter in this human world are all impermanent. There's more coronaviruses in the animal world that are waiting to be contracted by human beings that we have not yet contracted. That's why they're calling this COVID-19 because there's going to be a 20, a 21, a 22, a 23. There's a whole bunch more that haven't yet made their way from the animal world 
into the human world. That's why we saw H1N1. They have H7N9. They have all these different viruses in the animal world that haven't yet been brought into the human world yet. So we're going to discover new illnesses as we progress throughout humanity. As the world progresses, there's going to be new illnesses that arise. And the longer that we interact with living beings, eat meat and kill animals, the more of those viruses that are going to make their way into the human world. So this isn't the last one. And people have to understand that, that the quarantine is impermanent. The human body is impermanent. We are going to be sick. We are going to get old. We are going to die. That is the human condition. There is no way to avoid these three things, aging, sickness, and death. It's going to happen. Now, of course, we would like to delay that if we can, but the more that we hold on to craving life, the more the mind's going to be discontent when something that can potentially kill us arises. And as long as you're making good, wholesome decisions, you're going to encounter good results. So if you're washing your hands like they're recommending, if you're having social distancing, if you're doing some quarantining, if you're keeping good general hygiene habits, these types of things are information that the scientists are sharing with us of how to keep ourselves safe. And you can do that and you can practice that. And that's going to keep you safe. Those are good, wholesome decisions. That's your gamma. That's the result of your wholesome decisions. On the other side, recognize that only people who have compromised immune systems or compromised respiratory systems are actually succumbing to death by the coronavirus. That's what that 2 to 4% or whatever the numbers are that people are actually dying. So I'm pretty sure that everybody on this, this call, maybe, or this, this classroom, there may be one or two of you that should you get the coronavirus, you may have increased complications with it. But for the vast majority of the world, we're not going to, we're not going to die. We will have complications. We will have a severe sickness and we need to get medical attention, but we're not going to die from this coronavirus. And hopefully that can alleviate some of the fear of death and knowing that you're making good, wholesome choices that you are washing your hands, you are social distancing, you are adhering to the quarantines. These are all good, wholesome decisions. And if you're making those good, wholesome decisions, then you don't have to be fearful that you're going to actually get this coronavirus. And should you do get it, which there's been estimates that 20 to 60% of the entire world is going to get this coronavirus that potentially 20 to 60% of the world is going to get it. So if you get it, understand that you're most likely not going to die. If you think that you're going to die, you may actually die. I know of a story of a person who got shot in the foot and everybody told him that this was a not a big deal. He would pull right through it. It didn't do any lasting damage and he would survive, no problem. But his mind, he convinced himself that he was shot with a gun 
and therefore he needed to die, even though he was just shot in the foot. And over the course of a few days, he actually did end up dying. This is a, a medical story that I've that I studied about when I was in college. He had convinced himself so much that if you get shot with a gun, that you need to die, that he actually died and succumbed to his injuries of being shot in the foot when all the medical professionals told him that there's no way that he should die from these gunshots. So if you do get the coronavirus, which if the numbers are right, 20 to 60% of us in this classroom are going to get the coronavirus. Don't immediately put your mind to think you're going to die. Stay thinking positive. Stay thinking that, okay, I'm young, or even if I'm older, I don't have a compromised immune system. I don't have problems with my lungs. I will be healthy. But even before you get to that point, all the good decisions you're making now with washing your hands, social distancing, adhering to the quarantines, these are all good, wholesome decisions that are going to lead to good results. So there's no magic bullet of something that I can tell you and that your mind's going to instantly eliminate the boredom, the loneliness, the fear. This is all discontentness. There's no quick fixes. This is the gradual progress to enlightenment. The mind has to gradually move in that direction. So recognizing impermanence, recognizing that you have attachment, you're maybe afraid to die or you're afraid for your friends or your family or you're attached to going outside and now being inside is causing the mind to be discontent. This is just a chance for you to see how clear the Buddhist teachings are. But there's nothing that I could say to you that's going to instantly eliminate your loneliness, your boredom, your sadness, your frustration, your anger, nothing. It's practicing breathing mindfulness meditation. It's practicing generosity. That's going to eliminate craving. It's practicing loving kindness meditation and practicing loving kindness in daily life to eliminate hatred and anger. It's learning the teachings of the Buddha and applying them in your daily life to acquire wisdom, to eliminate that poison of delusion, ignorance, or unknowing of true reality. The only way to get to a content mind is to eliminate greed, hatred, delusion, or craving anger and ignorance, dissolving the self, realizing non-self, and eliminating the ego. And you're doing that through learning and practicing the Eightfold Path, which includes meditation. You're doing that through working on the 10 fetters, working to eliminate the 10 fetters, and it's a slow, gradual process. There's no quick fixes here whatsoever. Even the Buddha himself took six years to attain enlightenment. And this program that you guys have been studying with me, I think we've been going at it for maybe six weeks at this point, because we're on chapter six, <laughs> six weeks. And if you've been studying the Buddhist teachings prior to, to learning with me, maybe you're a little bit more into it. But if you've only been studying with me, I think Max is almost at a year now that he's been studying with me. Amina's yes, maybe at eight or nine months, but all the rest of you are maybe like six months or two months or a month. Some of you, maybe today's your first time joining in. Your mind needs gradual training to awaken the mind. It's just like when you wake up in the morning. When you wake up from a deep sleep, you don't just 
pop out of bed. Boom, I'm awake. Here I am. I'm awake. I'm here now. I just woke up. No, that's not how enlightenment works. Enlightenment is just like waking up in the morning. You, Your mind for about two hours before your eyes actually open, for about two hours, you're gradually coming out of your REM sleep for about two hours. Then you, at some point you regain your awareness and you kind of open your, your eyes. And you're like, oh boy, boy, that was a really wild sleep. And you start rubbing your eyes. You start wiping the sand out of your eyes. You kind of stretch in bed a little bit. You kind of lay there and maybe hit snooze a couple times. You kind of think about what you're going to do for your day. You know, you don't just jump out of bed. I'm awake. Here I am. Right. Anybody who tells you the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and instantly became enlightened. That's not true. Or if they tell you the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree for 40 days and at the end of that 40 days, he became enlightened. That's not true. Just like you wake up in the morning, slowly and gradually, the mind is going to slowly, gradually awaken. So work on this. Keep working on it. Meditating. Keep learning the teachings. Keep practicing the Eightfold Path. Keep practicing generosity. All these teachings that I'm sharing with you, slowly, gradually implementing more and more, and you're going to see more and more progress. There's nothing that I can say to you that's going to instantly change your mind other than keep practicing, keep learning, keep doing meditation, keep all the things that I've been sharing with you guys. Just keep working at it slowly and surely. And I know Bill's starting to talk about things that he's seeing improvement on. Max, you've seen improvement. Amina has seen improvement. Julie, you've seen improvement. You've talked to me privately. I don't know about Karen. I think maybe Karen's seen, yeah, Karen's shaking her head. Yeah, she's seeing improvement. Let's see who else we've got on here. James. Well, thanks for that, David. Yeah. So you guys um, by the way, just recognize say, that it's, it's a slow, gradual, gradual progression. Patience, patience, patience. Take your time. <laughs> Thanks for the reminder, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You put the coronavirus well in perspective there, and I think you highlighted a couple of really important things. The first being that um, the harm done to us from the virus versus the harm we do to ourselves through our own reactions to the virus. Yes. And how we relate to it. And I think that the second one being that how the teachings can help us navigate this situation with a content mind, but also how the situation can help us navigate the teachings. Yes. Right. This is what I want to share with this is what I want to share with you guys now too. Is okay, like Karen, Bill, Max, Julie, all you guys that have been studying with me for any amount of time, you're starting to see this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy that David's been explaining, you're starting to see, hey, that actually seems like it's possible because my laptop, in Bill's example, the laptop that used to make me irritated and annoyed, wow, I dealt with that pretty well. But I still got this discontentness from brother being in the coronavirus hotspot. So what happens is once you start seeing it's possible, once you start learning these teachings to a certain degree, the mind starts craving that peaceful, 
calm, serene, content mind with joy, and it starts craving that. And when the mind experiences discontentness, it's like, man, I'm not there yet. I'm not there. And, and not as emphatically as I'm saying it, right? I'm kind of emphasizing it, right? But the mind gets to the point where it starts seeing the possibility. It starts seeing like, wow, I applied these teachings for the last two months and I'm seeing improvement, but I'm not there yet. I'm not at that peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy. So what the mind will start doing is it will start craving enlightenment. It will start craving Nibbana. It will start craving this peaceful, calm, content mind with joy. And you've got to eliminate that craving too. You've got to eliminate that wanting of the peaceful mind, that expectation that the mind's going to be peaceful and recognize that you're still on the path and pursue it as a goal, pursue it as an objective, pursue it as an interest. And like I shared with Bill, you're on the path, you're making progress, keep going. You're on the path, you're making progress, keep going. That's it. You'll get there. Just you're on the path, you're making progress, keep going. That's all. Yep. I remember saying to myself many times, ah, yes, this is it. This the not not like no, this is any attainment or anything, but but this is this is what peace feels like and ah I can rest here now. Need for it obviously to then something happens, impermanence always comes around. Um and there will always be some curveball from somewhere. Yeah. You never know where. <laughs> yeah, like you can get to a point where your mind's peaceful for even like a week or two. And you're and you may even start thinking, Wow, I'm enlightened wow, I feel good. Like, wow, these teachings are, wow. I might be, I might be at the first stage of enlightenment. I haven't experienced anger for like three months. Wow, I'm at the second stage of enlightenment. Wow, look at that. And then boom, something happens and shakes up the mind and the anger comes in. And now you're like, oh, what happened to all that peacefulness? And now the mind starts craving to get back to that peacefulness again. So there's going to be this fluttering just like you wake up slowly, enlightenment is like that light switch that you turn on and it, it flickers. Not like the LEDs that we have nowadays, but the old lights where they kind of flicker, flicker. They, they stay on for like a few seconds and then they go out and then they flicker, flicker, flicker. And then they're on. You're like, wow, look at that. I'm enlightened. The light goes out. As soon as you're like, wow, I'm enlightened. The light goes out. So don't even think that you're ever enlightened because... There's never going to be a line where you're going to say, okay, now I'm enlightened. Because as soon as you tell yourself you're enlightened, you're not enlightened. Because <laughs> that's the ego telling you you're enlightened. <laughs> and if you have ego, you're not enlightened. So don't even try to look for that, that line where you say, okay, now I'm enlightened. Just gradually move closer and closer and closer in that direction and then one day you'll look back and you're like, wow, I haven't been angry for like two or three years. I haven't even been frustrated or upset or, wow, I'm not lonely anymore. I'm not bored. Wow, that's pretty nice. I mean, don't even think that, wow, I, I've done it. I'm enlightened. Because as soon as you think that, boom, you're not enlightened anymore because now you got ego. <laughs> it might just be that. You haven't encountered the right conditions for anger yet exactly right. exactly 
So even you, I, I, they will come. I mentioned this to Karen, I think a couple of weeks ago, where I said, if you were able to instantly snap your finger and lock in the Eightfold Path right now, which you can't do because the ceiling is the Eightfold Path and you guys are gradually working your way up to practicing the Eightfold Path 100%, okay? But let's just say we could snap our fingers and lock in the Eightfold Path right now and you were practicing that to perfection at this moment. Even if you did that, you're not enlightened yet because now you have to practice the Eightfold Path for an extended period of time to burn off all these unwholesome activities that you've been involved in for the last however many years. This is what I explained to you before, Max, as cleaning up, right? So even if you start practicing right speech right now, where you are practicing the five factors of well-spoken speech, you speak at the right time, what you say is truthful, what you say is spoken gently, it's beneficial, with a mind of loving kindness, without blame. Even if you practice that to perfection right now, there's still people in your life that you didn't speak that way with. And now when you spoke badly to your brother or your mom or your children, even though you're practicing right speech at this moment, your karma is still going to come back to you. Those people that you spoke in an unwholesome way to are going to come back to you and you're going to get unwholesome speech. That's your karma coming back to you. So even you lock in this eightfold path right now, you've got several years of practicing that to clean up your life and make sure that you're only producing wholesome gamma in all of these relationships and all of these situations where you clean up all the unwholesome gamma that you generated in the past. So practicing these teachings for two months or six months or even a year is a drop in the bucket. But you're moving in the right direction. You got to get closer and closer to that eightfold path. And then once you've got that narrowed in and you're practicing it more and more deeply, now you've got several years of that to burn off all this unwholesome gamma that you've generated in the past. Do you guys understand I that? Right. So if you've had neighbors that you've talking bad to and you haven't talked to them for a year or two, just because you're now on the path and just because you're now practicing right speech doesn't mean no one's ever going to talk bad to you again. Because those neighbors that you cussed out two years ago, but now you wouldn't even think about doing that because you're practicing the teachings. But two years ago you did. So when you're out mowing your yard and they come over and cuss at you, that's your karma because you cussed at them two years ago. And now what do you do with that? Now do you cuss back at them and make the kami even worse? Or are you gonna practice right speech and just keep the mind quiet or say nothing or move on? What you do in that situation now that this gama has come back to you, now you have to extinguish it. You have to extinguish that gamma. Perhaps the answer is say nothing. Perhaps the answer is apologize to them say, Bob, I hear what you're saying. I just want to apologize for what I said to you two years ago. That was wrong of me. That's a way to extinguish your karma. Saying nothing is a way to extinguish your karma. There's multiple ways to do it. But just because you've decided to now learn and practice this path for a few months, you're not going to get instant enlightenment. And even if you locked it in 
you still got to burn off all that unwholesome gamma and clean up all the mess that you made from the past. Even though we don't dwell in the past, all that past gamma is going to still come to you. And you've got to extinguish it. One thing you explained before was that when we meditate, we're in effect practicing the entire Eightfold Path at one time. So which I, I guess is why that even if we've still got a lot of cleaning up to do, we can have these moments of peace when we meditate where we do feel like there is nothing that can bother us uh, if we've cleaned up enough. But of course, when the conditions change, that's when we realize, ah, oh, okay, there's something else here that still needs to be uprooted. Exactly. So the more you're meditating, you know, during that time that you're meditating, yes, you're practicing the whole Eightfold Path. So you're not generating any unwholesome gamma. You're only generating wholesome gamma. So meditation is vitally important. But as you guys probably are aware now, that meditation is not the only part of this practice. You know, there's a lot of people in the world that are meditating, but it's the whole practice, the whole Eightfold Path implemented in daily life that is going to produce enlightenment for you. You can't meditate your way to enlightenment. I would say as big of a piece as it is, I mean, I would like to say meditation is 50% of the practice. And if I said that meditation is only 5 or 10% of the practice, you might not dedicate as much time to meditation because you do need to meditate. But I would almost venture to say that meditation is only 5 to 10% of the practice, honestly. Because in a given day, in a 24-hour day, I might be meditating if I was to keep track I might be meditating anywhere from 30 minutes over multiple sessions up to an hour or two in a given day, right? And at different times in my life, that might have been more. It might have been three, four, five, six hours a day, right? So it fluctuated because it's not permanent. But in a given day, I'm practicing the Eightfold Path 100% of the day. And remember that meditation is only one step. It's right concentration. But we're practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration all day, every day. So if I say meditation is only 5 or 10% of the practice, don't take that as I don't really need to meditate that much because you still need to meditate a good amount. You need to meditate a lot. But there's all this other stuff that you need to do, like learning the teachings, like applying the teachings, like practicing right view, practicing right intention, practicing right speech, practicing right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. What meditation does is it enables you to practice all those other things. So for me, what meditation is, it was like a reboot. It's like no matter what was going on in life, you can kind of reboot and kind of start back at the beginning. And that's what meditation is good for. And that's why I was mentioning to Karen prior to getting started today that kind of three times a day, which is what the Buddha was doing, is really ideal, even if it's only five or ten minutes. Because you wake up in the morning and you kind of set off your day with right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Even if it's five or 10 minutes, that's better than nothing. And then for four or five hours, 
things go and do whatever they do. But then in the middle of the day, you kind of resync, even if it's 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. And now you kind of resync right view, right attention, right speech, right action, so forth. And now you go another four, five, six hours. And in the evening, you meditate again, even if it's just five or 10 minutes. It's really a great way to just dig in and soak the Eightfold Path into the mind. Because in that four or five hour period, there's only so much that can go wrong between your meditations. And if you can do this, even just five or 10 minutes, I think you'll see the frequency is really helpful, even more so than the length of time. What I've noticed is if I was gonna do 30 minutes of meditation a day, three times at 10 minutes has been very beneficial rather than once a day for 30 minutes. If I was gonna keep track, I would almost say that three times a day is better because you're resyncing and re reconfirming three times a day, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, three times in your day. It's like three markers. So if you're limited in time, I would suggest that you go to three times a day for five, 10 minutes a day, rather than one 30-minute session. See how that works for you for a few weeks. I think you'll find that that frequency is gonna be more beneficial than just once for 30 minutes because then you've got 12 or 14 hours for things to go awry. Whereas if you have these markers three times a day, you've only got kind of four to six hours in between where things might go a little bit squirrely on you. I'd like to ask a follow-up, David. Um, if we took a more extreme example, say an hour of meditation once a day versus maybe, I don't know, you know, 10 cents of six minutes, do you think there is, there is also a counter-argument that then there might actually be a benefit in that real deep meditation, assuming you get to a deep state meditation in that hour versus the 10 times six? Yeah, I, w I wouldn't really advocate for 10 times a day because I think that's too much frequency. Although if you need it, go for it. Certainly the longer, deeper meditations have a great way of changing the mind. And Master V tells me that there's been scientific studies that 25 to 30 minutes is where the kind of optimal change is happening in the brain on the physical level. So yes, there's something to be said about the longer, deeper meditations, because you can get a lot of change during that time. So what I'm sharing about three times a, a day for 10 minutes, it's not to say you should do that every day, right? Because that's permanence, right? So what I mentioned was try that for two or three weeks and see how that benefits the mind. And then after that, you see how that works. Now go to maybe a longer meditation, which is what you're talking about, Max, and see how that, how that influences the mind. Maybe one longer meditation and one shorter one. So you can change your practice like this. Don't try to lock it in on one particular, there's not just one set formula. That's why I don't keep track of the number of times I meditate in a day. I don't keep track of how long I meditate each time. 
I just do it because I know it's right. I know it's helpful and I don't even try to keep track of it because it's also an accumulated benefit. You're filling up this bucket of water and you're scooping water into this bucket every time you're meditating. So you've got to fill up the bucket and then the bucket's the water's going to evaporate in the bucket. So you got to keep putting water in it. So why even keep track of how long you're meditating? Just just meditate. You need to do it. But it, what you'll notice is is if you resync, you know, even just twice a day in the morning in the evening, you're going to notice huge benefits versus just doing it once a day. Huge benefits. I think it, at least in my case, there's a kind of there is a kind of half life. And it varies. It's not permanent, mm-hmm. but I can see the wisdom in the three times a day approach because, you know, there's the so maybe the, the several hours after the morning, and then if I miss the middle of the day, there's maybe the several hours in the afternoon where it's not guaranteed that something mm-hmm. will go awry. Yeah. But it's just the likelihood that there will be some distraction, some absence of mind, mindfulness, something that happens, and before I know it, I'm caught up in something, and it's now. It now takes a, a heavier solution to bring the mind back to the middle, whereas before, had I meditated, I might have actually just just spotted it and completely nipped it in the bud. So yeah, it's this constant it's popping up. And you said something interesting there too. So let me just expand on it. You know, if you shoot for three times a day and you miss one, okay, you got two. So what the unrelated mind is going to probably want to do is make you feel guilty. Because you only got, I only got two, right? It's going to make you want to feel shameful that you did something wrong because your goal was three, but you got two. But if you don't hold it as an expectation or you, if you don't want it and you don't have this strong eagerness for it, if you're like, you know what? I'm going to shoot for it. I'm going to shoot for three. That's going to be my objective. That's, that's my interest. I'd like to get three. But if you get two, you're like, hey, I got two. Great. And then if you get one the next day, okay, I got one. But now tomorrow I'm going to still try for three. I'm going to keep trying for three. And over a gradual period of time, I'm going to slowly, gradually get closer and closer to three. And then I might do three for a while. I might do three for three, four, five weeks. But then I might go back to one. And that's fine too. So what the mind's going to want to do is it's going to want to have this set schedule. And it's going to want to come up with this set amount of time, a certain time of day. How long am I supposed to be doing meditation? The mind wants all these questions answered because it wants something to latch on to. And that's why I generally don't tell people how long to meditate for. Because five minutes is good. An hour is good. 30 minutes is good. But you're going to need to do a lot of meditation in order to fill up this bucket with water. So just shoot for three times a day or two times a day. Shoot for however long you, you want to shoot for. But don't hold on to it so tightly that if you miss it, that y- your mind's going to be feeling guilty or shameful that you didn't get to three a day. Or if you're shooting for 30 minutes per session and you only get to 20, don't feel guilty like you did something wrong. A- an enlightened mind is going to always see the positive. They're going to be like, wow, I got to 20 minutes. This is great. This is good. I got to 20. And it's not going to feel prideful. And the light of mind is not going to feel ego behind it. But you got to always see the positive side. And that takes us back to your question, Max, about the coronavirus and the quarantine. 
is you got to see the positive side in this. You got to be like, you know what? It's been, you know, I, people who are probably complaining right now that they're quarantined are probably the same people that a couple of weeks ago were complaining they were working too much. Right? A couple of weeks ago, they were complaining they were working too much and they never got a chance to rest. They never got a break. Their boss was working them too hard and they were complaining about that. Well, now they're at home, probably with pay for some people, and now they're complaining that they're at home. Why is that? Because the mind always craves what it doesn't have. The grass is always greener on the other side. It's always looking for the next thing to make it content instead of just being satisfied with what is. So the mind has to get to the point where no matter what's going on, it's just satisfied with what is. It's just satisfied with what is. And whether it's 20 minutes of meditation or 40 minutes, whether it's working or not working, that's what bringing the mind to the middle is, since that's the topic for today, is what bringing the mind to the middle is is being satisfied with what is. Whatever is, I'm just satisfied with that. If I'm getting paid 20,000 Thai baht a month or I'm getting 80,000 Thai baht a month, my mind is just as content. If I'm staying inside because it's too smoky outside with the air pollution, I'm just as content inside as outside. If I'm teaching at the temple or I'm teaching at my house, the mind is just as content. The mind's not attached to I have to teach at that temple because I've been teaching at that temple now for almost a year, but now because of the smoky season, I started teaching at my house and people coming to my house. Well, if my mind is craving to teach at the temple and I only feel like the ego is great when I've got all those big Buddha statues behind me and I can't teach when I'm at home because I don't have all those big Buddha statues, then the mind's attached to that temple and all of all that goes on there where someone who's more enlightened is going to just be content with what is, bringing the mind to the middle, being satisfied with what is. In my mind, I think of this middle way as kind of like the the middle between one danger being maybe a kind of hedonism or laziness and the other danger being expectation drawn towards effort and striving because uh, that's what happened to the Buddha, I, I think, isn't it? That he went from this very lush lifestyle to a very ascetic lifestyle. Yes. And what was really helpful there is that you just mentioned about um, the expectation of, oh, I'm going to meditate three times a day or for an hour twice a day and then punishing ourselves if we then don't meet that expectation. Yes. And that is precisely the ascetic view that Buddha walked and found didn't work. Right. It is, you know, this, this idea of, oh, if I go through enough pain, if I just do this fitness program or work this many hours a week or something, set this arbitrary target, mm -hmm. which can never be met 100% of the time forever, right? You may yes. do pretty well, yes. but, but at some point we're going to have to question whether that truly is the optimum amount of time to meditate. Yes. And that's going to change. And let me add another component to this is the vast majority of people in the West. And I feel that pretty much everyone that's studying with me on this particular instance right now, I can't see who's 
on Facebook or whatever. I have lots of people who study with me from Asia, but the vast majority of people who study with me from the West are coming from a Christian background over to the Buddhist teachings. And in some communities in Christianity, if you don't pray every day, you're made to feel guilty and shameful. If you don't do, in my case, when I was Catholic, if I don't do confession every week, you're made to feel guilty and shameful. If you don't take Holy Communion, you're made to feel guilty and shameful. If you don't give 10% of your salary, you're made to feel guilty and shameful in some communities, not everywhere, right? Because that's permanent. But in some communities, that's the way it is. So now that you're practicing the Buddhist teaching, and, and, and in that teaching, in that tradition, some people teach that God is judging you and that if you don't do all of these things, lots of bad things are going to happen to you and you should be guilty, shameful, and fearful, right? This isn't what everyone was taught, but this is what a lot of people are taught in the Western world in the Christian teachings. This isn't what Jesus taught, first of all, but second of all, in the Buddhist teachings, now that your mind has moved into Buddhism, you're still holding on to that conditioning from your upbringing if you were brought up that way, in the way that I was just described. So, what people in the West often think is if I don't meditate every day, the mind gets guilty, shameful, fearful. If I don't get that 30 minutes of meditation every day or twice a day or three times a day, I should be guilty, shameful, fearful, right? I should be sad. So we impose these feelings on ourselves because the mind has been conditioned in previous traditions that if you don't pray, you don't go to church, you don't give a certain amount of money, you don't do Holy Communion, you don't do confession, that you should feel guilty, shameful, and fearful. And that's not all communities that do that. There's definitely Christian communities that don't have that, but there's a lot of them that do. So if your mind sets up that you're going to meditate for even once a day, twice a day, three times, or whatever it is, if you don't meet that and you feel guilty or shameful, that's you doing that because your mind is holding on to it and you're expecting it. What you've got to see is, I can have a goal, I can have an objective, I can have an interest to meditate daily, twice a day, three times a day, and if I don't meet that, that's okay. Because there's no one judging you that you're good, bad, ugly, different, horrible person. You're on the path. You're gonna to need to do a bunch of meditation as part of this path. So set up an objective, set up an interest, set up a goal and work towards it. And if you fall short of it, no big deal. No need to feel guilty or shameful. Just keep working in that direction. So that's why I call it a ceiling. And you're just always working towards that ceiling of the Eightfold Path. And the Buddha sets the example of like, okay, this is what he did, but not everyone's going to do exactly what the Buddha did. But I can tell you when I do what the Buddha did, because I wanted to test it for myself. When I, when I learned through these books, the Buddha's teachings that, and I saw that he practiced three times a, a day. And at that particular time in my practice, I wasn't practicing three times a day. I moved to the three times a day schedule and I did it for three or four weeks. Drastic improvement, drastic improvement. And that's how I know what the Buddha taught is real. And what he did is, is true because I did it for myself. But now I don't get three times a day every day, every day. 
But for that period of time, for that three or four weeks that I wanted to test, I wanted to, to prove whether his teachings are true or not, I did. I did it three times a day intentionally because I wanted to prove whether it was true or not. And I proved to me that, yes, it was true. And then once I did that and I got all the benefit from it, now, to be honest with you, I don't need to meditate three times a day right now. So that's my middle, right? I don't need to meditate three times a day. Some days I do need to meditate three times a day. But right now, at this moment, I'm not meditating three times a day. I'm meditating once, maybe twice a day. But probably two or three weeks ago, I was meditating four times a day because I was doing twice for myself all by myself. And then I was doing two or three times in the classroom with the students. So my practice is doing this and that's okay because it's impermanent, but it never has there been a time or at least now in the past there was, but now, even though I have a goal to meditate two or three times a day, if I get once a day, I don't feel guilty. I don't feel guilty at all. I don't feel shameful. I don't feel like I've done anything wrong. But my goal is like two or three times a day. And then when there's times where my mind needs it, I'll ramp up to two or three times a day for a period of time. And then when I don't need it, then my I drop it back down to once a day. And it just happens by itself. I don't even make a conscious choice most of the time. I'm not trying to figure out how many times I should meditate prior to doing it. I'm just in the moment and saying, what does my mind need? And then I just go, go do whatever I need at that moment. So what you'll find is if you do three times a day, it will be highly beneficial for you and you'll make lots and lots of progress. And then of course, like what Max said, is if you meditate for longer periods of time, you'll notice you'll get more and more benefit. But there's no secret recipe here. You're gonna have to meditate a whole, whole bunch. So just develop that goal, develop that interest, develop that objective, and just keep working towards it more and more each day. And even when I check in with like Karen and Bill before we got started today and I asked them, how's your meditation practice going? And Karen said, oh, I'm at about 10 minutes a day, once a day. I'm like, all right, great, good. That's probably better than where she was a few weeks ago. So great, wonderful. And Bill has commented to me a few times that he's working on building up his meditation practice. Wherever you are in your meditation practice, I'm always gonna say, good, sounds wonderful. Unless you say, I haven't meditated for four weeks. I'm like, hmm, you should improve that. That, needs, that should get better, right? But I'm never gonna make you feel guilty or shameful about it. So I'm always usually just checking in with you how your meditation practice is going just to remind you to meditate. Just to remind you to meditate because it's, it's an important thing to do. Just keep working at it. You guys are doing a good job. I'm seeing a lot of the same faces coming to the classes repeatedly. I'm hearing from you guys that you're benefiting and improving the mind. You're on the path. You're making improvements. Keep going. Keep going. Bringing the mind to the middle. Even with meditation, you got to bring the mind to the middle because 10 times a day meditating, that doesn't quite sound like the middle to me. It could for somebody else. Now, it might be for somebody else. It might be their middle. But for me, that wouldn't be the middle for me. And zero times a day isn't the middle for me. At this particular moment, once or twice a day is the middle for me. 
But when I'm going out and I'm seeing lots of students, I'm having lots of classes, I'm having these long six hour classes, plus I'm editing podcasts at nighttime, I'm teaching classes on Wednesday and Sunday online, there my meditation ramps up. The more that I'm doing, the more I'm interacting with people, my meditation ramps up. Now I'm pretty much in the house because of the air quality, not really seeing too many people, my meditation ramps down. So that's where I mentioned the middle is always ebbing and flowing. But for me, 10, 20, 30 times a day, that wouldn't be the middle for me. And zero times a day wouldn't be the middle. So you gotta find your middle even with meditation. Gautama Buddha's middle was three times a day. That was his middle. And he, he discovered that through his own practice. And he was teaching a lot and had a lot of people that were needing him. So you've gotta find your middle and then don't get attached to it because it's gonna change. <laughs> Are there any other ways we can apply this teaching of the middle way to meditation, particularly perhaps during meditation? Yeah, for me, uh, another way you can apply it during meditation is the mind's gonna to wanna to pull to the past or it's gonna to wanna to pull to the future, is bringing the mind to the breath, that is the middle because the breath is the present moment. The breath is the present moment. That's the middle. The present moment is the middle. When the mind resides in the middle, it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If the mind's dwelling in the past, whether they were pleasant past experiences or whether they were painful past experiences, a mind that's dwelling in the past can't be peaceful, calm, serene, and content because it's in the past. And there's nothing you can change there. You can't change anything about the past. If your past was very pleasant and enjoyable, where you were outside, you were doing things, but now you're quarantined, if that was very pleasurable for you, you can't change that. You can't get that back at this moment. So the more the mind craves that and wants to dwell there, it's going to be discontent. And if your past was painful and you had a lot of painful things that happened in your past, you can't change that. There's nothing that you can do to change that. So if your mind dwells in the past, it's gonna be discontent. Likewise, if you're meditating and your mind goes to the future and you have anticipation of all these wonderful things that you wanna do in the future, your mind's not gonna be content because it's gonna be anxious and it's gonna be wanting and craving the future. Or if you feel like life is somewhat miserable right now, and you think the future is gonna be miserable too, and the future is just gonna be miserable, everything's miserable, the future is so miserable, and that's all you think about is how miserable the future is gonna be, the mind's discontent. It's only when you bring the mind to the breath in meditation, the present moment, ah, Everything's peaceful, everything's calm, everything's serene, everything's content. I'm joyful because I'm not thinking about the past. I'm not thinking about the future. Any ideas that are coming in, I'm not holding on to any of that. I'm just satisfied with what is the present moment. That's the only place that your mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy is the present moment. 
the present moment is the middle. That's the middle. So when you're meditating, always bring the mind to the breath. Cut off your thoughts. Let them go. Always bring the mind to the breath. And when you do that more and more and more over meditation, then in daily life, you've trained your mind so well in meditation that your mind's always in the middle. It's always in the present moment. You're never thinking about the past. You might have a thought about the future like, you know what? Once this smoky season's over and once the quarantine's kind of over, I would like to go back to teaching at the temple. Not sure when that's going to be, but yeah, I would like to get back to teaching at the temple because there was a lot of interaction, a lot of people I was able to meet over there. I was able to help a lot of people. I'd like to do that at some point. But I don't know when that's going to be. I don't know when that's going to happen. Because right now, I'm just in the present moment. I'm teaching you guys online. And I actually anticipated this smoky season in Chiang Mai because it happens every year. I anticipated it two or three months ago that I wasn't going to be able to go out teaching. So I developed this online program to help you guys online. But I also knew that that was a way for me to continue teaching because I wasn't going to be able to go to the temple. So you can think about the future in terms of yeah, I would like to start this online program and get it going so I can help some people during the smoky season. Or once the smoky season's over, I would like to go back to the temple and start teaching, but I'm not attached to it that it's got to happen on April 1st or it's got to happen by April 15th or even it's got to happen. I might go back to that temple and they say, you know what? The monks have decided to start teaching and they would rather you not teach anymore because we appreciate the time that you've been here the last year. But now that you've built up a little bit of a community, we would like to start teaching. Okay, sounds good. You guys teach. I'll go somewhere else. I'll start up a community somewhere else. So if the mind's attached to a certain time that I have to start teaching at the temple again, or I have to teach at that particular temple, or any other number of things, the mind's going to be discontent. So it's not holding on. So you can think about the future and have certain goals and objectives and interests that you would like to pursue, but just don't hold on to them so tightly that if you don't meet them, now the mind's discontent. Max is a businessman, so I think about like business, right? Like I want to make 10,000 pounds a month and that's the goal. And usually this is what a good businessman is going to do. They're going to have a certain goal and they're going to push and push and push with marketing and other efforts. And they're going to push to get to that goal. And then once they get to that goal, then they're going to raise it to like 12,000. And now they're going to push and push and push and push and push and push to get to 12,000. Now they're going to raise it to 14,000. Now they're going to push and push and push and push. And people just keep craving and craving and craving and craving and craving. And what Max has kind of done over the last couple of months is like, you know what? I used to make this, now I make this, and that's okay. And I don't need to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. I'm just going to adjust my life to be satisfied with what is. This is the past. This is what I used to make in the past. Now I make less than that, and that's okay. right? But what we get caught up in in daily life of whether it's business with finances, whether it's with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, children, our home, our job, we just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And let me say this another way. We keep craving and craving and craving and craving and craving more. And we're never done. 
the mind can't be content because it's just pushing and pushing and pushing. And even when you get to your goal, then you move it. And now you push and push and push. And you say, if I just get to 10,000 pounds a month, I'll be all right. I'll be content. I'll be peaceful. But then once you get it, then the mind increases the goal again. <laughs> and this is how people just, they're never content because the craving just keeps producing discontentness over and over and over again. So we've got to just yes. be satisfied with what is, bring the mind to the middle and figure out where is the income, where is the relationships, the outside time, all these different topics, we got to bring the mind to the middle. Thanks a lot, David. I have had all my questions answered. It's been a really useful one. We don't seem to have any more. Okay. Well, then what I will do then is I will wish you all a very good rest of your weekend, a very good week coming up. You're probably inside, not going out as much. This is an absolutely wonderful time to pick up a book, to read, to meditate, to work on your, your chanting, this stuff, right? If you're experiencing discontentness from being inside, the stuff that I just mentioned is what's going to eliminate that. Going outside when the quarantine's lifted, that's not going to fix the problem. When the quarantine's lifted, that doesn't fix the problem, right? People think that the problem is the quarantine. The quarantine is not the problem. The problem is the mind wants to be outside. That's the problem, is the mind wants to be outside. The quarantine is not the problem because we're going to be quarantined or we're going to have situations where we can't go outside. We're going to be sick for three, four, five days and we're going to be stuck inside. We can't go outside. That's going to happen. That's impermanence. That's the nature of being human and in the human condition. The quarantine is not the problem. The problem is that the mind wants to be outside. The mind craves to be outside. The mind has this longing, this eagerness, this strong interest, expectation, this wanting to be outside. That's the problem. So while you're in quarantine or you're deciding to stay at home on your own, if you want to fix the problem, don't focus on Trump. Don't focus on your prime minister. Don't focus on the numbers of how many people are getting sick and dying. That's not the problem. The problem is the mind. So focus on this stuff. Reading the book, practicing the teachings, doing meditation. When you do that stuff, you're working on the real problem. So that way, for the next sickness, the next virus, the next quarantine, the mind can be calm, peaceful, and content. Because there's going to be another one. So the problem isn't the quarantine. The problem is the mind has this craving, this longing, this strong eagerness. So fix that. People want to blame Trump, and maybe he's made mistakes. I'm not a political person. I don't support Trump and I don't talk bad about him. I, I'm, in, I'm in the middle. I don't get involved in politics. Whether you're prime minister or your leaders of your country are making good or bad decisions, that's for all of you guys to decide. But 
those people, this virus, this quarantine is not the problem. The problem is the mind is craving. And the only way to fix that is through training it, through meditation, through understanding these teachings. Awakening the mind is what will solve the problem. So until next time, I will say, have a good rest of your week. Thank you guys so much. Be well. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.